What's going on, everybody? Welcome to episode 52 of the Finding Strong Podcast. I'm Mark Bottenhorn, and I'm fortunate enough to be sitting beside Michael Benvenuto. And today we are joined by elite marathoner Ryan Miller. On today's episode, we talk about Ryan's journey to the 2020 Olympic Trials Marathon, all of the highs and lows that led him to where he is today. Uh, it's truly a great story. Uh, I absolutely loved it. He is such a good storyteller. He is so funny. You guys are going to love this episode. Aside from being a professional marathoner, Ryan's also a new dad and a coach. And as a matter of fact, he happens to be my coach. So happy to bring him on, introduce him to everybody, and let him tell his story. This is episode 52 of the Finding Strong Podcast. I hope you enjoy. What's going on, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Finding Strong Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Bonhorn, and I'm sitting here with Michael Benvenuto. Hey, how's it going, guys? And we have a very special guest here today, my brand new coach, Ryan Miller. What's up, everyone? How's it going, Mark? Hey, doing well. My coach gave me a rest day today, so all I did <laughs> was to walk in the park. It was the nicest day probably in Texas in the last six months, and I couldn't run, but that's okay. That's okay, Ryan. Um, so how's it been? Man, it's pretty good. Um, so you're pretty close, South Texas, but San Antonio, uh, to be exact. Battle oh. of the Alamo. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but no, life's good. You know, biggest life update for me. So... Um, that's exciting. I mean, I'm, I'm glad to bring my little guy on. His name's Maverick. He's totally <laughs> healthy. White's totally healthy. And I, uh, have been getting about three hours of sleep the last 10 days. So lays up day here. <laughs> that's Welcome awesome. Congratulations. Yeah. Thanks, congratulations. Thanks. Appreciate it guys. Yeah. I think that's a, that's a true test when you can run with the stroller on three hours of sleep. That's when <laughs> the Olympic trials is impressive, but when you can do that, it's even it's even more impressive. Yeah, so yeah, he, I guess you, first, what what you need to do is go show up at a local five k and just smoke some people with <laughs> the baby stroller. I got smoked <laughs> once by a guy at a five k. I thought I was doing pretty good, and then a dad rose right by me with his baby in a stroller. I'm like, oh god, you know, it's you not know what's my funny, day. Michael? I actually had visions of that. I was doing a run on my treadmill today, trying not to fly off the back of it. Um, <laughs> I was thinking about man. What, I, I need to run a marathon with a stroller and just be, you know, I wonder what guys would think about behind me when they see me run, potentially running away from them with like a little kid in a stroller in front of me. I just had a good, good laugh at that. Dude. Yeah. It's going to be sweet. Like they're not even <laughs> going to know what's, what's coming for them. I'm excited for that. I, I was in a race one time and um, I think I was doing the 10 K, but a guy in the five K ran like 15, 1530s with a stroller. Oh gosh. Yeah. I'm like, well, this is so impressive. Hey, Michael, welcome back. Yeah, sorry, I got booted. That's okay. I think we're all good now. So, yeah, sorry, uh, San Antonio. I actually, this might be unpopular, but I like San Antonio a lot better than Austin in my personal experiences there, at least. Oh, oh gosh, yeah. It's, it's a little bit more low-key. House prices are about half of what you would find in Austin. And uh, a surprising amount of trails all around the city. They've been last, like, 10 years or so just – building all these greenways um, throughout creeks around town. And I think there's about 80 miles of trails um, yeah, that just I, appeared in the last decade. So it's awesome. Yeah, yeah no, I, was, I got I, to run on 
Go ahead, Michael. Yeah, I, I, I saw I saw on your Instagram that was like you listed that as one of your pl- favorite places to run. I was so jealous of that. Uh, that looked like some cushy, nice flat up and down trail to run on. Yeah, it's pretty legit. But you know what? Like everybody, no matter where you live in the country, I mean, everybody, I mean, obviously like the Colorado's, the Flagstaff, the Mammoth Lakes of the world, they have like the very picturesque running scenes. But um, no matter where you are, there's always those little hidden running hollows or those oases that you can go out and find yourself. I mean, I was talking to um, one of my athletes today who lives in Wisconsin, and you would think that's just farm fields with cows everywhere, you know, making cheese. But she was telling me about all these awesome state parks, these rolling hills, um, awesome ultra training out there that she gets in. And, I mean, you can literally find it anywhere. Yeah, Ryan, I broke my foot in, in uh, Wisconsin, northern yeah. Wisconsin on the Ice Age Trail. Those trails are beautiful, <laughs> but, but uh, yeah. I don't, they're very technical. Like when you start getting up there, there's all carved out by glaciers, a lot of rocks, like a lot of rocks and roots. It wasn't like Colorado. It was, it was much less runnable. I, I give them credit for sure. But yeah, that's what I yeah. th- would have thought too, like cow pastures and everything like that. But no, I think that there's, um, there's beauty everywhere if, if you can find it. Um, I know, you know, in the Metro Detroit area, there's, there's, a, there's so many good trails there that you wouldn't expect. And um, mm-hmm. although I'd say Dallas is kind of lacking in that, in that scene. Yeah, it seems like White Rock Lake up there is really the place to be um, for anyone getting into good run. At least that's what I see when I check out Strava runners in a DFW. Yeah, that's the place. That's the place. You know the Nomad Running Society people? Yeah, yeah, I've I, seen a few of them. I run with a lot of those guys, and they uh, they run out there every weekend. I try to run with them nice. too much, though, because they just hammer everything all the time. <laughs> and I don't and I don't want to get in trouble with you, so I back off it. I don't want to feel like crap for the rest of the day. Um, but anyway, enough about enough about us. Let's uh, let's dive in. So let's uh, you know what I want to start with. What I think is really impressive uh, about you, I think that like obviously you're a great runner and you qualified for the Olympic trials and you run for you run for Rabbit Pro, right? Correct. Any other sponsors? Yeah. So uh, Rabbit is my main apparel sponsor, and then I also work with Clean Athlete, which is they're based out of Pittsburgh, and they're um, you know a great supplement company that you know, I get all my protein and my probiotics and omegas and multivitamins from. Um, I've actually been with them even longer than Rabbit since literally I gra- like a week after I graduated college, and then Noon Hydration and uh, Squirrels Nut Butter, which is. You know, if you haven't heard of them, go look it up. I promise you it's nothing bad when you type it in Google. <laughs> <laughs> no, quite the opposite. It might prevent prevent you from something bad, though. So that's the, <laughs> that's the beauty of that. So what I, what I think is really impressive about you is you have obviously have a lot of accolades as a runner, and, and we'll dive into all of that, of course. But I, you're one hell of a, of a coach and a leader and a mentor for a lot of people, and I think that's really cool. Yeah, I appreciate that, Mark. It's been interesting over the last couple of years since uh, – you know, I really, you know, I, it started out probably like a lot of, you know, budding coaches um, out there do. And you just kind of, you start with one or two people, um, you establish a strong rapport with them, and then they start recommending you to friends. Um, it slowly grows from there. And it's really, um, the growth is evidence of the quality of the coaching and the relationships you build, right? So even up to this point, um, you know, I've, I've got, you know, I've, <laughs> I've got, 30 plus athletes at this point from the last couple of years. And it's grown just word of mouth. Really. I don't have a website. Um, I don't really put it out there all that often besides giving my runners some shout outs on Instagram every once in a while. But um, it's pretty cool to see the positive feedback and the continual growth. 
Yeah, dude. And so when did, when did, yeah, when did you, uh, when did you start coaching? Like, what was the, what was the first person bring us back to that day? Were you apprehensive to do it? Was it something you had thought about doing throughout your running? Fun to coach kind of take us back there. Yeah. You know, what's interesting, Michael, is that, um, it's, it's almost like you just, you have to get the momentum rolling, right? With anything in life, it's like once you start, it gets a lot easier. It's just like taking that first step is always the most difficult. So I'm 28 years old right now, relatively young. Um, I would say it's, it's pretty difficult with your limited life and running experiences at, you know, let's say 23, 24, 25 to jump into the coaching game. And you may not have the confidence to say, Hey, you know, you that, that is 40 years old, has kids, has all these experiences. I'm going to teach you about running, even though I've just run in high school and college. So um, it took a few years for me to gain that confidence. Um, but by the time I was entering my late twenties, I'm like, okay, I've really had a lot of great experience throughout high school, throughout college. And now in the post-collegiate world, um, I've learned from at that point, five fantastic coaches um, I've done a lot of studying on my own. I feel confident in understanding the physiology and the psychology of running. Um, went through a USATF certification course. So I set myself up so that taking that first step was a little bit easier. And then once that happened, the time frame, January 2019, um, I'll have to go back and look at the exact date on the Instagram post, but literally just threw it out there and said, hey, um, I appreciate everybody who's been along with me on this journey. I want to share that with everybody else. Um, anyone that's interested. And of course I, I made it really, really affordable at first. Just wanted to really get my feet wet. Um, had about five people reach out and, you know, a couple said, yeah, let's do it. Uh, most notable among them was probably uh, Luis Chavez who lives in Oklahoma city and um, great guy. Uh, you know, he's a 15, 18, 5k runner, 70 flat half marathoner. Luis um, is a good friend of mine, man. I love him. Yeah. Yeah. No, he's uh he's fantastic. So, him and, uh, and, and a few others I've grown with over time. And, you know, just slowly, as, as we, like I said, established that rapport, um, they've made recommendations to friends and people that reach out to them. And yeah, so that's, that's kind of where, where it all started. Yeah, that's, that's something great. And I'm excited to see you grow um, as a coach and, and watching, you know, watching Luis, watching how much he's improved, watching all of the, all the things he's done. Like, it's insane. And the stuff that yeah. you're doing is it speaks for itself, and it's truly something special. I appreciate that, Mark. Thanks. So, so I mean, without without the practical, like you could be really educated, and that's really important in coaching. But without the practical application of 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 doing it, of competing, at least having some background in the sport, like you, the likelihood of being successful is pretty low, right? And it doesn't mean that the best athletes are always going to make the best coaches because we know that to be false. Um, but some practical application is probably necessary, and and you have a great deal of that. So why don't you? take us back to how running kind of started for you and what got you into the sport. Yeah, for sure. As, as with probably a lot of, um, you know, lifelong runners out there, it really starts when you're in middle school, you're in high school, you know, you sign up for cross country and you show up that first day wearing uh, basketball shorts down to the middle of your calves and um, in like, you know, indoor soccer cleats that shouldn't even be worn as running shoes. Uh, that was me, you know, showing up like freshman year, had no idea what distance running really entailed. Um, like a lot of people, I like, I associated it with, oh, running is, is punishment for all the other sports I played previously. And, uh, I grew up, I was a really big, uh, basketball, soccer, and baseball player, um, growing up. And I slowly over time kind of whittled those down to, you know, soccer and basketball throughout middle school, 
And then when I got to high school, I started only playing soccer and doing cross country and track to kind of just, you know, bolster my fitness um, for the varsity soccer team. But um, after a couple of years, I kind of stagnated on the soccer team. You know, I was a backup on varsity. I wasn't really playing all that much. And uh, the team I was on was a, a state championship team in Texas, um, down here in, in Bernie, uh, Texas. So, you know, I, I kind of saw the tea leaves and saw that I really was probably not going to get a shot to play a, play a starting role in my high school soccer career. So I was starting to enjoy running a little bit more. I, I made the varsity my junior year, um, had started having some success. And of course, like when you're successful at anything, it's fun, right? Uh, win, winning is, is enjoyable. So that kind of got me hooked on it. And um, I remember it very specifically. It was on my birthday in 2008 um, my cross country team won the state championship and it was the first state championship in the history of our school. Um, I was the fifth man. So I was like a scoring member on the team, my first year on varsity. Um, and man, I just like, that was like the highest moment of my athletic career up to that point. And I, I just fell in love with running from there on out. So I, I went back to school the next week. I walked into the varsity soccer coach's office, told him I quit and just went all in on running at that point. Uh, I've never really looked back since, uh, from, from that point on, I, you know, I had some great teammates, um, that were mentors in high school. Um, I had a fantastic coach throughout my high school years and they, they set the foundation of, you know, continued growth over time, having patience and being willing to put in the hard work that leads to growth in the long run, right? They, we didn't sacrifice anything short term by running 100 mile weeks in high school but we also weren't out there running 15 mile weeks expecting we could become the best runners we could be um so we worked we worked hard uh, but yeah that's that's really where it all started yeah i mean that's what a you took a little bit of a gamble there um <laughs> but I, but obviously you knew you were going to be uh, pretty good at running and i think you made the right decision i think it's pretty safe to say at this point yeah yeah i'd say so too <laughs> So you went on to run uh, collegiately at Texas A&M? I did. I did, yeah. So I'll, I'll walk it back a little bit because probably, probably the most special memory of my own personal running career um, so far has been my senior year of high school. Uh, my team, we won the Nike Cross National Championship, which is the oh, wow. national championship wow. for high schoolers, um, which I think I remember my coach, there was a big article in the San Antonio Express News, and he said there's you know, between 40 and 45,000 high schools in the United States. And of course, most high schools, you don't recruit. Um, it's just the kids that are in the, in the school district that go to that school. So to, to be incredibly lucky, yet also do it with my best friends and put in the work over a couple of years to get to that point was the most gratifying running accomplishment in my career. Um, and it's, it's funny to say that, like, I, I, I know people sometimes look back at their high school days and think, oh, yeah, I, I was a state champion back in high school. And, you know, they're all <laughs> washed up now. But I, I took that as, um, you know, an example that like, hey, if I could do this over two years, what can I do over the next four or five at Texas A&M? And then what can I do over the next, you know, 20 running half marathons, marathons and beyond? So it was really a, a catalyst for growth heading into my time at Texas A&M University. So what made you choose to go to Texas A&M? Yeah, good, good question. So I wanted to stay in state, um, you know, with my family, I was going to pay for college myself. And I, I knew the financial realities of taking out uh, loans to either go to a private university, you know, anywhere in the country or an out of state school was just 
not going to be feasible uh, for me, and I didn't want to take on a lot of debt. So, you know, pretty much set on a public. Um, so I was looking at Texas A&M. Um, I was looking at University of Texas, and I was looking at University of Texas San Antonio, which I literally, like, that school is down the street from me, so it's kind of hometown. That's the Roadrunners, um, right? The Roadrunners, yeah. yeah. I, I love the Roadrunners. My mom went there, and it's a, it's a great school, to be honest. But I had, I had good enough academics that I got into all the schools academically. Um, I didn't need a scholarship, per se. So, you know, I, I took visits to all the schools. Um, UTSA told me that, hey, we'll, you know, we'll give you books if you want to come. Uh, Texas A&M said, hey, you know, we'll, we'll give you a, a walk-on spot, but you're basically guaranteed to be on the team if you show up and you're in decent shape. And then the University of Texas, University of Texas told me, well, like you can show up and we'll let you try out for a week or two, but you're going to have to hit some really good times to like make our team. And so it was like, it was not guaranteed, right? It was, um, <laughs> you could, you could show up here and you, you could just not make it. So yeah. I, I looked at that and I was like, man, to, I could take my chance. University of Texas had always kind of been my dream growing up. Um, you know, that's, hard to say considering now that I went to Texas A&M and I'm a, I got maroon blood running through my veins. Uh, but, you know, Texas A&M had won the national championship in track and field the last two years. They had a program that was like on the rise and had been to nationals and cross country. Um, so I just saw that and I saw that guaranteed opportunity to be a part of their team. And I took it. Plus I felt a little bit more at home there. I was from a small hill country town in Texas and I liked that vibe of college station over Austin. Um, okay yeah that makes sense so that's cool i was like i was hoping the story was going to be like uh you, you know you're a great runner and johnny manzel called you like personally <laughs> and said hey we want you to join this team or something you know i thought like i just like johnny manzel so much so i was like you know what he has to know him i know he you knows know him yeah well you know what's funny is um johnny was actually dating uh, a girl in my in my grade at, at when i was in high school um, her name was sarah savage and he went to he went to kerrville which is about 20 minutes north of my high school and they're they're our main rival and i remember um homecoming my senior year johnny came in and he put like 65 points on us and threw for like 500 yards on during our homecoming <laughs> game and just totally destroyed us it was i but it was i mean I'm a huge fan of his after I saw what he did at Texas A&M while I was there. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. That's no, that's really cool. But, um, all right. So cool. So, so take us through what your college, uh, running career looked like. Yeah, man. No, it was, you know, it's pretty similar to, to high school actually, in terms of, you know, come in, um, you know, scraping by just to make the travel team. Um, and when I say travel team for, you know, a college team, it's basically, there's a limited number of resources or seats on the plane or hotel rooms when you travel to meets across the country. So you have to be good enough and competitive enough to make, you know, the top seven, top 10 on a cross country or track team for distance runners to be able to travel to meets. So um, my freshman and sophomore year, I actually did not get to travel with the Texas A&M track team at all. Uh, I was not, I was not good enough to represent them uh, on a, you know, on a national level. And thus I stayed at home and trained basically for two and a half years before I got an opportunity to compete on the outdoor track uh, with Texas A&M. So, but you know, that was okay. I told you all about like just what was instilled in me um, throughout high school. And I was ready to put in the grind to my goal was really, I wanted to be an all American in college, even though I was just a walk on coming in. So I did that, worked my butt off. Um, 
I kind of moved to the end. I ended up, um, I was ended up being top five all time at 10,000 meters for Texas A&M in 2951. A um, couple times finished with all SEC 10,000 meters um, on the track. Qualified for the NCAA uh, uh, national regional qualifier meet at 10,000 meters. And then my fifth year, I was the number one runner on the cross country team. Yeah, so that, I love that. Like that's a from a walk on to the to the top dog, and you yeah. and, and you put in the work, and you stayed humble, and you just worked at it, and worked at it, and worked at it, and that's something that that's really good because I think somebody who's like one of the best runners at their high school or they win Nike cross country nationals with their teammates, it, I think it would be easy to come into college like you have all these life changes just in adolescence and and everything's moving so rapidly, and you come in and and now like everybody's the best person on their college or, you know, on their, on their high school team. Right. And, and you're yeah. not traveling with the team and you don't feel like you're contributing. I feel it could be really easy to, to give up or get discouraged or quit or transfer, but instead you fought it out in the trenches and, and ultimately reap the rewards of it. Yeah, that's for sure. And that's what I always, you know, I, I mentor a few high school and college runners. Um, obviously my, my coaching services right now are primarily focused on, you know, 5k to marathon on the roads and then ultra marathons. But, um, the, the few high school and college runners I also mentor um, along with their, you know, own school coach. Uh, I talk to them consistently about that, that it's not about one day. It's not about one week. If you have a goal of being a state champion and you're not even making your varsity team, that's okay. You know, work your butt off to get there and it, you're not going to get there unless you try. So, and I try to use my own journey as a testament of what's possible for them to achieve and hope, hope to help inspire them. I don't say that out of like, being braggadocious or anything like that just generally trying to inspire other kids and people who i see kind of taking the same steps as me that they can achieve anything they want no oh, yeah, if anything i see yeah, go ahead, yeah go ahead. that's sorry i've been having connection issues guys i apologize um i keep getting booted off but um no i think to be able to mentor somebody like that at that age you know i they've never been there before and they're trying to fly in rarefied air. They have big goals they want to accomplish and to be able to talk to somebody who's been there and done it before makes it more tangible and makes it more real. So that's, uh, that's incredible that you're able to do that for those kids. Definitely. Yeah. And it, you know, it, it's, it's amazing to be able to, you know, mainly at the end of the season when they're, they just, they're so thankful and I I'm thankful for them that they put their trust in me. I mean, just like you're doing with me now too, Mark. Yeah. Yeah, no doubt about it. Um, you yeah. know, I think like you're so humble that like you're doing something uh, for people and then you're saying, I'm not trying to brag, but what you're doing is actually the opposite of being self-centered and bragging. Like you're going out of your way to try to make a difference in somebody's life. So that's uh, yeah. I think that's a testament to your character uh, for sure. Thanks, man. So um, a lot of people, by the time they get out of college or NCAA running, you know, a lot of people that I know, at least in a personal experience with, uh, they tend to be burnt out, um, you know, making big life changes again, transitional period. Uh, what was what was that like for you specifically? Like, did you know that you were going to try to run professionally or what was the what was the plan coming out of college? You know, I knew I wanted to keep running. Um, I, I still I had that fire burning in me, like I said, from that point in high school after winning that state championship. And I, we went all the way through the end of college. Um, I, I never really felt like I had pressure on me to perform, you know, like maybe some kids who are prodigies or quote unquote prodigies in high school or college that accomplish great things and maybe feel like 
their best days are behind them. I never, I never felt that way at all. And I knew, you know, my, my strong suit um, throughout my high school and college years where I performed best compared to a lot of my teammates was the long runs and long workouts, right? I mean, we go do a 50, 50 minute tempo run and I'd be running with, we, we had a guy on our team named Henry Lillet who he ended up running 747 for 3k, which is like 409 a mile. And I, I wow. could hang with him on tempo runs and I was not, you know, he would lap me in that short of a race, but for the long stuff, I could roll with him. So I knew, you know, I was limited to 10,000 meters in college. That was the longest distance I could run. It still felt too short. So I knew half marathon, marathon, like that's what I'm doing next. And that's what, when I graduated college, um, I took a job in the Woodlands, uh, Texas, which is down in Houston. And I joined a team down there called Team Green Running. Um, and they had a few post-collegiate runners on there that I wouldn't say any of us were professional. Um, we were all, you know, Olympic trials hopefuls at that point, but it was a really good group of guys that had similar goals to me. Um, so I, I like within two weeks of graduating, I was working full time as a um, supply chain manager in oil and gas and training full time, running 90, 100 mile weeks um, to get ready for my first half marathon. That's a lot of balance. Were you working with a coach at that time or were you just kind of working with the guys that were on your run team? Was there any structure to the training? Like how, how were you setting things up at that point? Yeah, we, uh, we had a coach. His name was Dan Green. Um, he was a former coach at uh, the Woodlands High School. So, um, you know, I, I, like I said, I had quite a few coaches throughout my year so far, and I learned a lot from each of them. And he was definitely the most, I would say, militaristic um, in terms of his coaching approach, very old school, um, which works for some folks and doesn't work for others. And uh, I, loved his, I loved the type of workouts he gave me, but I definitely clashed in terms of, having a coach where I wanted to have as much say so as him. And it didn't, you know, I didn't quite fit that, that coaching style as well. Just like other people. I mean, we all, you know, we experiment with coaches, we experiment with coaching ourselves and you have to find that right personality fit with somebody who's going to be your partner on your running journey. Yeah, absolutely. 100%. So now, um, obviously to this point, so you're on the verge of, uh, of doing big things. Um, but I think, you know, we mentioned one thing earlier, and we talk about it a lot of times. Um, people who compete in endurance sports uh, in college, if, if they have a triathlon team, uh, but primarily running, um, are, are much more likely to develop an eating disorder um, yep. or have a bad relationship with food. And that's something that you struggled with. Uh, yeah, right? for sure. Um, in college, specifically, you know, those first couple years, uh, my freshman and sophomore year in college, I was not um, – you know, I told you I was not traveling with the team. So I didn't get quite as much time to bond with my teammates like I did in high school where literally spent every waking second with them um, and uh, traveling to all the meets and, and everything. So in college, it was a little bit di more difficult. And my mindset my freshman year of college was that I did want to continue working hard. Like, don't get me wrong. Like, I knew it was going to be a grind to really get to being an All-American like I wanted to be. Um, but I put so much pressure on myself. Um, and really it came from like a perfectionistic, um, tendencies I've had growing up that I had to be the best every single day at what I was doing or else I wasn't going to accomplish my goals. Um, and that was, that had to do with running, you know, um, and that also had to do with academics. Um, I was in engineering at Texas A&M and, you know, some of those first year weed out courses are pretty stressful. Uh, so 
I mean, I just started putting so much pressure on myself. Um, I started stressing out so much. I wasn't sleeping well. Um, it slowly evolved into uh, depression. I started having anxiety about, you know, my, my course load and that I wasn't going to be performing well and running because I was stressing and I wasn't, I was stressing because I wasn't running well. And, you know, you can see how that could kind of, kind of like a snowball going downhill. Um, mm-hmm. And so, I mean, it just got to the point where I was still, you know, I was still running. Um, I was not feeling good doing it. Uh, I was still going to school and I was still making passing grades and doing all right there. But I was just, I was so unhappy. Um, and as I was just kind of wallowing in that depression and anxiety, um, part of that perfectionistic attitude obviously parlayed itself into I have to eat perfect in order to perform the best I can and you know I started and of course I was doing this on my own I didn't have anyone telling me or guiding me on proper nutrition for running performance or anything like that but I thought I have to be lighter I have to look like the Kenyans I have to you know eat a salad for dinner so I can be as light as possible to be the best runner possible and um over a couple of years, you know, it, it went, started as really undiagnosed anorexia where I was really restricting what I, what I was eating um, to the point where I was bulimic uh, my sophomore year of college. And I was forcing myself to throw up after meals and, and binge eating. And it was, you know, I look back, on it's hard. I, I don't think that way at all anymore. And it's, it's, it's hard for me to go back and put myself in those shoes from a mental health perspective. Um, Cause I've just, since then I've really tried, I've, revolutionized the way I think I think about myself and my journey in life um, and being happy and finding balance and knowing that everything's not perfect. Uh, and so looking back on that, it's like, man, I can't, I can't believe it all spiraled like that. But I think it really started with, I got caught in this, you know, downward spiral of depression and anxiety, which, you know, caused the eating disorder, which was hard to bring myself back up out of. But luckily I had, you know, um, really strong parents who were able to intervene and help sit me on the right path. Um, and really the thing that got me on the right path again was number one, I started taking antidepressants, which stopped that downward spiral and kind of got me to stabilize. And then I went to an eating disorder, um, clinic. It was an outpatient clinic in San Antonio called Ed Casa where, you know, it, it almost didn't really have anything to do with eating, but it was just changing the mindset about myself and knowing that I don't have to be perfect. I am perfect the way I am right now. Um, and I can be happy if I find balance in life. Right. And so after eight weeks of intense therapy with them and really shifting my mindset towards life, I was able to blossom. And you know, I, I told you some of the accolades um, that I ended up achieving by the end of my, my college career. Yeah, that's, that's really good to see that. It's, it's also, I think really important um, you know, in my own struggles with anxiety, depression, and um, a really bad relationship with with food in the past. Um, you know, I think a lot of people reach out about like mental health things. And I think it's probably because I'm pretty open about it on social media. And I think what you highlighted there is really important. I think a lot of people are afraid or, or, or don't have the resources or whatever it may be uh, to take the first steps and and kind of work towards bettering themselves by seeking out like professional help. And I can't overstate the importance of that. I think that um, obviously therapy is, is very important, but for a period of time, I use an antidepressant as well. And I thought it was very helpful, but there's a huge stigma around like obviously mental illness and, and, and mental health and things like that. So I think 
more athletes we have like you who are who are elite caliber athletes stepping up and being role models in this. I think it's really important. So I do thank you for sharing that, you know, here with us. No, thanks, Mark. I appreciate it. And I think it's, like you said, it's really important to realize that um, a lot of us, you know, a lot more of us than you probably think are going through um, stuff like that. And it's okay, you know, that maybe you may not be going through that all the time. There might be periods of your life where you go through it. Um, Mm -hmm. But talk to people, you know, talk to your closest friends, talk to your family. And yeah, the professional help, I mean, seeing a psychiatrist, a psychologist, and going to the, ther- the, the clinic for the therapy, man, that literally pr- saved my life. I don't think I would be here in, in these shoes. I think I would still be alive. But I, think, I don't know if I would be where I'm at now, you know, with a newborn son, a loving wife, um, a great relationship with running, awesome friends, if it wasn't for that. Yeah, I would echo that same that same sentiment. So I, I, I love, um, I think sometimes mental health, the resources and help can be hard to, to get or acquire. Um, but like I said, I have a number of, of resources and we say this often, but if, if anybody's listening and, and, and need some help, please feel free to reach out to me. I'd love to give you some resources and point you in the right direction. Um, you know, some different uh, mental health uh, help and things like that as always. Um, me personally, I had a, I had a struggle with like, so coming from, you know, playing soccer in college and post collegiately, um, and then doing a little bit of like bodybuilding and physique competing. I was I was larger than a typical runner, we'll say, if there is a such thing. And um, I was by no means like obese or overweight. I mean, I was overweight in the BMI, but I was very yeah. lean and muscular. Um, so people would suspect that like everything's great and I'm really happy with the way that I look or whatever it is. But, uh, when I, when I first started running, I, I put a lot of pressure on myself to try to do well because I've just always loved it. And I had a lot of friends that did well. And, um, you know, hearing constantly like, Oh, you don't look like a normal runner and, or like your legs are huge or different things. You know, at first I hated that so much and it, and it forced me to be like, well, most runners at my height are like, you know, that are like really good or like 130 pounds and I'm like 160 or 170 even. Um, so like, what can I do? And I would start restricting my eating really bad. So I got to one point I was practicing with the, um, the, the track team around indoor track time in college. And it was after my last, uh, soccer season and I would just work out with them. And I was so dizzy. I was taking a shower after practice and I was so dizzy that I like passed out in the shower. And I realized like over the last few days, I ate like only vegetables. I ate like some broccoli and some carrots, uh, <laughs> and the whole bunch of water. And I thought like, for some reason I thought that was a great idea and that would be in some way conducive to performance. You know, I went through periods of time where I wouldn't work out at all, like, because I didn't want to gain muscle. Like, naturally, I think I gained muscle a little bit easier than I, you know, I think I'm probably a better strength athlete than a, than a runner, but I love running. And um, so I did everything I could to avoid the weight room and, and try to lose as much muscle as I could over a two-year period. And then I just, one day I said, what am I doing? I'm sacrificing who I am. And, you know, I had help and was able to talk through with my family and friends. And I just said, you know, screw it. Got back in the weight room one day and I haven't looked back. And now I take pride in maybe looking atypical for what I try to do, you know? Man, yeah, that is such an awesome story, Mark. And like, I just want to like, you know, add on to that and testify that uh, being a, you know, quote unquote, heavier or bigger runner does not mean worse performance. And I want to give like the example of, you know, when I, when I got to the end of my sophomore year of college, um, I actually, I had a nerve injury in my foot in addition to the eating disorder. And I went from weighing 135 pounds to 175 pounds. And that was all fat. I wasn't working out at all. Like I, I, I brought a lot of fat and I came back to school um, after, you know, I came back my junior year 
the mindset had totally shifted, but I was 40 pounds heavier, right? Um, but the crazy part is within three months, I obviously shed a little bit of that fat and I went down from 175 to 165, which was still 30 pounds heavier than what I'd been the previous two years at Texas A&M. Yet I PR'd in the 5K and broke 15 minutes for the first time by 40 seconds, weighing 30 pounds more than I did before, right? And so it's not like I felt stronger. I felt more energetic. I felt happier. I felt well-fueled all the time um, and found that balance in life, right? So getting back to the weight part, I mean, that's just, that's just one example. I guarantee there's a lot of other people out there that can tell you that, hey, once I started fueling my body and listening to it and feeding it what it really wanted, um, your performance increases naturally because that furnace is burning hotter inside of you. Yeah. Well, no, that, I, yeah, that happened I, with I, me. Yeah, same, same with me. I, I got the same thing. I mean, before I met Mark, I was trying to stay, and I'm 6'4", and I was trying to stay in like the low 170s, 170, 172. And then Mark and I started working together, and uh, I was running faster at like 180, 185. Um, you know, I, I, I yeah. think, yeah, people get obsessed with the numbers and having that runner body type. Uh, there's, you know, different levels of it for everybody. But, yeah, I think uh, the more we share and talk about it, <laughs> Yeah. You know, the more awareness we can create and make people more comfortable. Yeah, I think so. I think so. The male perspective on it's unique too, because I mean, um, women suffer disproportionately from, from like college age women, particularly athletes, uh, suffer disproportionately from eating disorders. Um, and that's something that needs to be addressed. And I'm, I'm thinking early, you know, it seems to be shifting some. Early. Um, but it's there is a male perspective I think that's often overlooked. So it's, it's important to share that too, because I know a lot of people struggle with that. And then, you know, I mean, I mean, for me personally, like scientifically speaking in science backs is there, there are negative returns on everything. Right. So just cause some is good doesn't mean more is better, you know? So like if, if you lose, if you lose four pounds or something and it makes you, it might make you perform a little better, but if you lose six, it, you might just very well and do everything that you just did. So I think, too often we get caught up on weight, we get caught up on numbers, the very arbitrary numbers too. Like BMI is an interesting thing. It's completely arbitrary. I mean, it's, so if you look at those things for what they really are, I think at the, at the end of the day, I think you summed it up perfectly when you talked about happiness. Um, and I think like at the end of the day, we're all doing this for fun. Like your stakes are a little bit higher than mine when you're running and you know, there are people at different levels, but at the end of the day, like you're doing this because you love it. I do it because mm-hmm. I love it, certainly. And and it it just seems like sometimes we put so much pressure on ourselves that's, that's unnecessary and it drains happiness out of our life if we're not careful, you know. So true, so true. I just want to – I think that one thing for people to kind of take home uh, as far as, like, weight goes, um, and I, I try and communicate this to all the athletes that I coach, is that if you're generally eating healthy over time, right, and I use that 80-20 rule, right, like 80% – be trying to put in the right stuff in your body, you know, that's going to have you feeling good. 20%, you know, have that ice cream, have that pizookie, uh, you know, have the milkshake, whatever, whatever you want. It's okay. Uh, and if you're training and you're, you know, you're, you're doing the running as prescribed by your coach, your body is naturally going to find that weight that allows for the best performance, right? Because our bodies adapt to all stress that we put on it. Um, and so if you're doing weight bearing exercise in a consistent manner that stresses your body appropriately, it will naturally find a weight that allows you to perform best for the stress you're putting on it. Does that make sense how I explain that? It makes a, it makes a hundred percent 
Yes, it's that's it's yeah. exactly accurate. It's the same thing, um, and I'm sure you, I'm sure that you get these type of questions as a coach. I know I get these questions a lot, um, yeah. and no, it's I think that that's I'm happy that you added that. And that's perfect, honestly. Yeah. All right. Cool. So uh, now let's get into the into kind of the present. So from from your time being the top, eventually working your way to the top cross country runner at Texas A and M. Um, and then, and then running down there in the woodlands, which is a great city by the way. And their high school program there is like insane. Um, yeah. but, uh, beyond that, um, so tell us, tell us how that went. You training for your first half marathon at one point there. Yep. Yep. So I graduated college in May of 2015. Uh, the goal, I mean, I told you half marathon marathon was kind of what I felt my calling was, um, on the roads. And w- when you're a half marathon or marathon or, uh, coming out of college at that level, I mean, really the logical step is you want to qualify for the Olympic marathon trials, which the times um, compared to qualifying on the track or, you know, maybe some other events at the Olympic level are a little bit more achievable to get to at least the Olympic trials level. Cause there'll be a few hundred men, a few hundred women that make it across the United States every four years. Um, but I had my sights set on it. The tough part was that I graduated six months before the Olympic trials. So I only had, literally, I had five months and had never run a half marathon or marathon to try and hit the time, which was still, the time to qualify was still far superior to what anything I had performed in college. So, uh, I mean, I put my nose to the grindstone and started running. Uh, it was tough at first living in Houston for the first time in Texas. If anyone, if any listeners are from Houston and, you know, you know what the summer's like, it's Ooh. 80, de- it's 82 degrees at 6 a.m. with 130% humidity, basically, Ugh. every, every yeah. day. Not uh, pretty, Yeah, pretty brutal. So I, I set my sights. I knew I had five months. I was like, okay, two, two solid half marathons. I think I can put in training to hit, you know, one after three months and then another one two months later if I don't hit it the first time. So I, I trained for that first one. I'm working real hard in the summer in Houston. I go to the San Jose Rock and Roll Marathon, um, my debut half. And, you know, I tell myself, look, I'm going out at 104 pace, which, you know, mid 450s per mile. Um, and I'm just going to hold on for dear life. And I'm, I'm going to do it like this is, a, this is a game of willpower, right? And so they shoot the gun. It's pretty funny. I'm like two and a half miles in to the, to the race. And I'm in the lead pack. You know, I think we hit a first mile like 445, second mile like 451, like really rolling. And I'm feeling, I'm feeling pretty good. Um, and I look to my right and... The guy running next to me is Meb Kaflesky, who had won, he had, he had won the Boston Marathon the year before and was one of the best. He was the like former American record holder at 10,000 meters. And I, I like almost like crapped my pants. Like I was That's like, oh my incredible. God, I'm running next to Meb Kaflesky. Like, what am, and I got, honestly, I got like a, an immediate sense of imposter syndrome. You know, what, who am I to be running next to Meb Kaflesky? What, I just graduated college from, you know, some, you know, a, a, a football school in Texas. What am I doing here? Um, and so, you know, I, I hung on as long as I could really, but I ended up fading really bad towards the end. And I ran like 109, which is four minutes off the qualifying time. And in the grand scheme of things, not, that's not very close when you get to that level. Four minutes is, is a big amount of time to make up when you're getting down mm-hmm. into the, you know, single digit one hour mark. Um, yeah. So uh, I had two more months, um, again, put my nose to the grindstone. I, I was more determined than ever. I was like, look, if that was the worst fade I could have at the end of a race and I was only four minutes off, what can I do when I don't fade? 
Hey, so, Ryan, I got I to gotta ask you, when you, were, when you were running side by side with Mev, did you say hi to him? Did you ask him a question? <laughs> No, you know, I didn't, I didn't say anything. He had some pretty cool sunglasses on. I couldn't tell where he was looking. Uh, I was actually, I'm actually a little, quite a bit taller than him. So it was, uh, I should have asked for his autograph or something, get some new sketchers from him. But, uh, now he's, I talked to him, I talked to him after the race a little, he was like congratulating everyone at the finish line. He's literally the nicest, most humble guy you could ever meet. Um, for, for the accomplishments that he has, you know, Olympic silver medalist, American record holder, amazing, amazing guy. Um, but no, so I, I went to, I signed up for the Jacksonville half marathon, uh, which is kind of a random race in Jacksonville, Florida on the second day of January. And it was the last opportunity to qualify for the Olympic marathon trials. Uh, same goal. I, I said, you know what, I'm going to go out there and just stick my nose in it. Um, there's really, there's really no risk, right? Like I go out, if I fade and I die and I don't make it, then it's the same as not trying. So I might as well go out and like, give it my best shot, you know, take my mm-hmm. shot. Um, not going to waste my shot. Just like Hamilton is saying Hamilton. Um, <laughs> so I've had that song stuck in my head so much lately, guys. It's like been motivating me. Like, yeah, I'm going to run hundred K this year. I'm going to take my shot. I'm not going to waste this shot. <laughs> Anyways, got a little sidetracked. Okay. Jacksonville. I do like, I go out there, I shoot my shot. It goes amazingly well of, you know, four and a half minute PR qualified for like with marathon trials, my second half marathon. I mean, just, I was like over the moon. Um, literally, wow. you know, since I was in high school, I was like kind of dreaming of competing at that level. Um, and it seemed like it was just so far off, um, you know, from being a, the fifth man on a high school team in Texas to actually getting to that point and getting there relatively earlier than I thought. I thought it might take, you know, five, 10 years after college, but uh, <laughs> six months. <laughs> yeah. I mean, six, six months in just, I had the right opportunity, the right people around me and, that race was set up where they had a pacer that I just followed from the start and just kind of took me to, I ran one Oh four It's like right under one Oh five to qualify. Wow. Um, so it was great. And then I'll, I'll cap this section of my life off with probably the most un- unfortunate part of all this. So I'm in the shape of my life, right guys. I qualify for Jacksonville at Jacksonville. It's five weeks after the Olympic marathon trials. Um, I'm ready to roll. I throw down a couple 20 mile long runs. I mean, I, I felt good. I was running, you know, five ten, five oh five pace at the end of the, some of those long runs. Um, and I, I was like, this is my time. I'm going to shock the world. I'm going to be amazing at the Olympic trials. I'm only 20, 24 years old. Um, but the week before I started to get like a stomach ache and I kind of assumed like, okay, you know, I, I ate something bad at Applebee's or whatever I ate the, week, the, the night before. Like, I'm just going to take some Pepto-Bismol. I get to feeling better. Um, but over the course of the week before the Olympic trials, it started getting worse and worse and worse until like, literally I'm flying out the next morning. It's like 11 PM. And I feel like somebody's stabbing me in the stomach. Like they're oh. twisting a knife. I look down, there's nothing down. There's no one stabbing me. So clearly there's something wrong inside of me. So you know, I call my parents in tears. I'm like, I, I just don't know what to do. They say, you need to go to the emergency room, like get this checked out. So I go, they run some tests. And they come back in and the doctor's like, son, you know, we're going to have to rush you into surgery immediately. Your appendix is, is about to rupture. Um, Whoa. And yeah, yeah, no, I'm about to fly out the next day. Yeah. My dream race, the Olympic marathon trials. And oh my God. I, I, I mean, I just start bawling, man. Like it, talk about like oh, having a dream come true a couple weeks before. And then all of a sudden ripped away for, 
I'm no one can control when their appendix is going to rupture. I don't, I don't think. Mm-hmm. So, I, it's, I mean, I, it's kind of funny looking back. I'm just crying. And the doctor comes up to me. He's like, Oh son, like, don't worry. Like most, pretty much everybody makes it through this. Like nobody's ever died on the table, taking out an appendix. You're going to make it. It's okay. It's okay. He thinks I'm scared of dying. Yeah, I'm like, no like, man, like yeah. I gotta go. I gotta go make the Olympic team. Come on. Let me, I, I actually asked him, I said, can I go race still? He's like, we're, we're cutting your stomach open. Like you're not going to be running a marathon in three days. So I watched the Olympic trials from a hospital bed and that was a oh. pretty, uh, pretty interesting, interesting experience for sure. Wow. And, and, and mentally, I mean, I know you had said, you know, the amount of work that you had put in, uh, at, at what point did it, did it really like sink in and you were able to kind of recycle everything that you had felt and were able to get back to working again? Like what, what was that process like? What were the emotions like at any point? Did you think about quitting and saying, Oh, I'm I'm never going to be able to get back to this point. This isn't going to happen. Or were you hopeful? Uh, Just kind of take us back there. Yeah, no, that's a really good question because coming back from something like that and, you know, other people go through much worse things in their life. Like I I won't make light of missing a a race as like some horrendous thing that happens. Um, It's it's definitely like in the grand scheme of things, there's much worse things that could happen. I was still thankful to be alive, you know, in that moment and have my family there and people still supporting and loving me. But, you know, I didn't really think about it this way back then. um, But now I like to think and even advise some of my athletes that go through similar things. You know, COVID has been similar in terms of putting life stress on people from job circumstances to sickness to, you know, being socially isolated, but it's okay to feel however you're feeling, right? Realize that your feelings are real. If you're disappointed, you're disappointed. If you're sad, you're sad. You're happy. That's awesome. Like just know that like whatever feelings you have are valid and that's okay. Um, and so back then when I was going through that, of course, like I was pissed. I went through probably like the seven or was it seven stages of grief? I forget what, what they actually are, but you yeah. know, I went, I was like sad. Then I was pissed. Then I was resentful. <laughs> then I, you know, you know, that two and a half week period after surgery, no running, went through the seven stages of grief, um, <laughs> feeling everything in the books. Uh, but I remember my, my first run back, um, the doctor had finally cleared me to run again. They took the stitches out of my stomach. Um, and I, you know, I finally didn't have to like be hunched over 24 seven as my abdominal muscles were, were healing. Mm-hmm. So I went to the W.G. Jones state forest in the woodlands, you know, some perfect, nice manicured pine needle trails up there. It was sunset. It was really beautiful. And it was one of those runs where, you know, I think everybody's probably had it at one point in their, their running journey where they're coming back, you're coming back from an injury and you just feel so thankful to be able to do what you love again. You know what I mean? Even if you're not Mm -hmm. feeling great, even if you're not as fast as you've ever been before, like you just have this renewed perspective of, man, I'm just so thankful to be out here. That's how I felt. Um, So, you know, I, I was feeling really motivated. I put out a post on Instagram afterwards and I was, you know, I had some inspirational quote in there and I was like, they may have taken my appendix, but they'll never take, you know, the hot fire burning inside of me to be the best runner possible. Yeah. Something (laughs) like that. And, uh, I was truly ready to, I was ready to go. Um, so much so that, uh, I signed up for my next race like that night, um, which was the U S half marathon championships, which were in Columbus, (laughs) Ohio that year. And it was a month and a half after later. So I literally had six weeks 
And it was like two months after surgery that I was going to run in a, a, a U.S. championship race. Wow. And, um, and physically, what did the surgery, like, were there any limitations from the surgery? I mean, did you, uh, obviously, you know, your abdominal was probably sore, but how, how was the rest of your body? Honestly, it, it felt fine. Um, I think I, actually, I didn't really know what an appendix was. When you look it up, it's really, really small. And if they do the surgery uh -huh. pr properly, I think it was what they call arthroscopic, where they go yeah. in and they made like three small and smaller incisions throughout my abdominal muscles to get the cameras and equipment inside. So they mm -hmm. didn't have to do like one huge cut, but it still okay. tore, it tore, it tore my abs up going through. Yeah, that. absolutely. Um, yeah. Six weeks of training, jumped in the championship race. Um, it was, you know, I ran, you know, a couple minutes slower than I had to qualify for the trials a few, you know, a couple months before, but um, I still had the courage to go out there and try and keep chasing it, knowing that like, Hey, happened but i'm only 24 you know 2020 yeah. i'm gonna be 28 i'm gonna be in the prime prime you know physical uh age or so people believe um and i'm gonna get after it so that's i mean that's what i did and it just kind of even burned hotter afterwards wow that that's incredible I, the the fight to come back like that that's inspiring for me i'm about to head in for some hip surgery so i'll uh i'll have to steal your post and write the same thing again and See if I can't <laughs> sign up for a race right away. That's incredible, yeah. man. Yeah, definitely, Michael. Listen to your doctor and your PT <laughs> on that. If they tell you not to race, don't, don't be like, the fire burns hot. I don't care. <laughs> Let's hey, know what they say. Mark, Mark will tell you, I've been ignoring everything they've been telling me for like the last two years. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. It's been frightening for me personally. I'm like, <laughs> it's not a great idea. <laughs> Oh man! Wow, um, that's incredible. So, so you bounce back, and uh, you know, are you still training with those same guys down there, or you know, how what was the uh, lead up? Because obviously, you, um, you know, you you ended up qualifying again for the Olympic trials. Like, what what was that journey like after that half marathon? Yeah, so just a brief a brief overview from 2016 to 2020, almost like bringing it into present day. Um, I ended up moving to Midland, Texas which is way out West in Texas in the middle of uh, the desert and the oil patch. Um, I told you when I moved to Houston, I was there um, at a corporate headquarters, but I took a position in the field, um, you know, a promotion going out there and everything. And I thought it was really great for my career, um, which it was at the time. Um, but I moved out there and I, I wasn't going to be training with that group anymore, obviously because I don't live there in Houston. So um my coach is pretty old school. I took up um, being coached by a triathlon coach, actually, who I had spoken with and clicked really well with. And so he coached me while I was out in Midland um, for a couple of years from 2016 to 2018. And, you know, it just kind of kept making small progressions. Um, I made my marathon debut and I ran in 2018 and I ran 2.19.17, um, which I was on – 216 pace through like 22 miles and then as any first time marathoner can probably attest to uh <laughs> hit the proverbial wall it, ha it literally it happens to the best of us like i don't yeah. i don't care whether you're you're power walking a 10-hour marathon or you're elliot kipchoge running you know breaking two like uh it hurts um and those last six miles are tough yep. no matter who you are yeah absolutely so, uh, yeah so i yeah i did that um and that was actually i was you have to run under 219 to qualify for the Olympic trial yeah. for 2020. So I missed qualifying by 17 seconds. Um, but I knew I, I still had over a year to qualify. So I wasn't too worried about it. And then 
at that point, I made the jump from that triathlon coach I was working with to a bona fide um, elite running coach out of Santa Barbara named Terry Howell. Um, great coach. I've been working with a couple of other uh, of my former teammates from Team Green, actually, who left and, and were working with him. So he took my running to a whole nother level. Um, within six months after I ran 219, um, I PR in the half marathon and ran 104 flat. And then I made a, had a five minute marathon PR and ran 214 to place 12th at the U.S. Marathon Championship in 2018. Wow. Which that, that 214 was definitely, and really still is probably my most competitive um, time I've, I've ever put, put out there. Wow. And what was that? I mean, that race, was that uh, like consistent pace throughout? Were you able to find an extra gear at the end that you didn't know you have? Like what, what was the, uh, what resulted in that time for you? Yeah, no, that's, a, that's a good question. Cause it, there is a big leap in experience going from your first to your second oh, marathon. Yeah, it's massive. I mean, it, it's huge. You know what to expect. You know how you're going to feel. You know yeah. how, what effort level you should be putting out in the beginning to feel good in the end. Yeah. So I measured myself much better. I was way more fit. I was running way faster than my first marathon still, but felt better doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, I, another, another little funny story here. I, uh, so, you know, as before any race that, you know, half marathon, marathon, ultra, that you're going to be out there for a while, most people, go to the bathroom probably quite a few times in that last one to two hours leading up to it. Right. Cause you don't want to have to go to the bathroom out in the course. Oh yeah. You know? Absolutely. And that was me. Like no doubt. Yeah. Like I'm at the port, I'm at the port potty every five minutes yep. leading up to the start. Um, <laughs> so I'm doing that just like every other race. I feel fine. I'm drinking my coffee. Think I got everything out of the system. As soon as the gun shoots, I'm like a mile and a half into the race. I feel some movement in my stomach. Right. Oh no. Um, <laughs> like, like most of us, like you're going to test it out. You're like, okay, I think it's a fart. You know, I'm going <laughs> to let this out. I'm going to crop dust the guys behind me. Yeah, perfect. I go to let it out. It's, it's not, it's not a fart. Oh, no. uh, it's, it's bad news. And this is the mile and a half mark of my, like this marathon. I'm just in prime shape for like, yeah. I'm going to run with the leaders. I'm going to crush it. And, oh gosh, I got to poop at mile one and a half. So uh, I ended up, I held it off until mile 16. Um, and that took a lot of, a lot of perseverance, wow. yeah. <laughs> just the whole, just the whole that off beyond just actually running five Oh five pace, uh, for a marathon. But, uh, at mile 16, I, I made the mental decision. I was like, I cannot hold this. I'm not going to be the meme of a guy finishing marathon with crap running down his leg. Yeah. Like, that's not, not I, a good I, look. I, I want to run fast, but I don't, I'm not at that expense, please. Dear God. Yeah. So <laughs> I see a porta potty up ahead. Um, I'm actually running with the lead pack in, in the race at this point. Um, and there's probably like 12 of us there. So I see the port potty up ahead. I literally, cause I'm still feeling good at this point. I take off sprinting towards the port potty And uh, I talked to a couple of the guys after the race and they were like, yeah, man, we, you took off sprinting at mile 16, running like four flat pace in the middle of a marathon. We thought you just felt really good and we're making a break for it. <laughs> I was like, no, I would not sprint like a 30 second, 200 in the middle of a marathon by choice. Uh-huh. But I, I didn't want, I didn't want them to gap me. Right. Like I wanted, I knew they were going to pass me when I went to the bathroom, but I wanted to have as little amount of time to make up. Mm-hmm. So I go in, I, I rip that door open. I'm surprised it didn't come off the hinges. Like I'm like, <laughs> I'm like moving pants are coming down as I'm twisting toward the toilet. You know, it's, yeah. it's, one, it's one sweet, 
yeah, one sweet motion going in. Yep. I'm probably out within, I'd say, like 15 seconds or so. Oh, yeah. Um, I'm, yeah. Pretty, I'm pretty sure people caught a glimpse of my, you know, a lot of white on my butt <laughs> as I was popping out. Like, I, the pants are still being pulled up. Uh, but so I lost, you know, I probably lost like 100 meters to that point. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the guys ahead of me, like in a marathon, um, it's important to like stick with the pack, let people break wind for you. So I knew strategically coming out, I, I was done with the, going to the bathroom. I was like, okay, I can actually focus on the race. Yeah. I had to catch up to them as soon as possible in order to start drafting, to stick with them, to help them help have them help carry me to the finish line yep. and be competitive. Sure. So I, in the next, over the next mile, I think I ran a 446. Wow. Is what my watch showed, which is still, I look back on that. I'm like, I can't believe I split a 446 in the middle of my marathon. That was, that's kind of insane. That's, badass. Um, that's almost my mile PR I, 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 almost. <laughs> it's a, it's, it, it was crazy. It was a little downhill guys. Sucks. So yeah. give too much this credit. sucks. But <laughs> finally, I, finally I someone up. makes Mark feel bad about his times. It's about time. <laughs> oh man. Okay, but to cap this all off, I get up to I ca- catch up to them. Uh, my most momentum actually carries me to the very front of the pack again. And I I saw as I I caught up a couple of guys did a double take. Yeah. Like they saw me and they're like, "What?" Like they thought I was done. You know, I'm I'm going to the bathroom in the middle of the race, and they're running a pretty quick pace. Um. Yeah, I ended up. I held on till mile 23 and I still faded a little bit this race, but it wasn't as bad of a blow up um, as the first marathon. Cause I was on a uh, two thirteen low pace. And I ran two fourteen thirty. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I slowed down by 10, 15 seconds a mile those last few miles, but nothing that was going to, you know, break my break the race or have me not qualify for the next Olympic marathon trials. Wow. That's incredible. Incredible. So, so that, that race puts you into the Olympics, and now you've got how much time before the uh, Olympic qualifier? Well, it actually already happened. So you want to hear how that went? <laughs> well, uh, well, yeah. Well, no, I know, I know the, that that race already happened, but I'm saying in between that time and you going down to Atlanta, oh, yeah. how much time did you have to prep? Uh, like what were you looking to build off of? What were you looking to work on? what was the plan after that, uh, after getting in? Yeah. Good, good point. When you want to become competitive at like a particular distance, you've already had success at. Sometimes you have to look at working on things that are like not your strong suit or getting away from that distance for a little bit in order to come back and have new strengths that you've developed in other areas. Mm-hmm. So my coach and I, we knew when we looked at my, you know, resume, my weakness really was the shorter distances. Um, so we knew that in order to be competitive at the marathon, at the Olympic trials level, I really needed a half marathon that was in the 103, 102 range. Um, because mm-hmm. at the Olympic marathon trials, there's going to be guys that split 103, 104, 105 back to back. So if I can't even do yeah. that once, how, how the heck am I going to keep up with the leaders um, at the Olympic mm-hmm. trials? So that's what, what we really set out to do. Uh, the next year was, was a little tough, um, mainly because a couple months after that breakthrough marathon, I did suffer from a sports hernia, um, which is basically, basically my adductor muscle, um, which most people would associate with like their groin. Um, it, I had a partial tear, um, up near the hip, um, on my pelvic bone. 
So I basically had to do some intense rehab over, you know, a two month period and allow my body to build back up after that. But despite, you know, missing a solid three months of training from that sports hernia, um, I did lower my half marathon PR by um, a minute to 103.45. And so I did that at Houston 2020, uh, literally like, I guess, you know, six weeks before the Olympic marathon trials earlier this year. And what were some of the things, because Mark and I talk a lot about, like, you know, the little things that you can do throughout training to get better. And I think it's, you know, incredible for the listeners to hear somebody who's running, a, you know, the times that you're running um, and the improvements that you need to make are, you know, the margins are razor thin. You know, what were some of the little things you did in training to help you improve? Yeah, I mean, so number one, I listened to my coach, right? Like, I knew that he always has my best interest in mind and the types of workouts he gives me are going to prepare me to achieve the goals that I want to achieve. Um, so that was number one. Um, number two, I actually, my physical therapist that I worked with for the sports hernia, I kept working with that physical therapist even after I healed from the sports hernia. So I was getting very specific strength work um, and like hands-on dry needling sessions um, and manual therapy from my physical therapist, strong relationship through, um, that injury period with. So that was actually a really big component of just becoming functionally stronger and really having a stronger Mm -hmm. body, right. To be able to handle more miles consistently, to be able to run faster, et cetera. Um, so with that, I mean, probably one of the biggest things that my coach at the time implemented was we, we would do fartlek workouts where we would like, you know, fartlek is where you run fast, you run slow, or you, you know, you run hard, you run easy, however you want to term the effort, um, but speed play. Uh, and so the type of work he would implement was like, we would do, let's say one mile at, at half marathon pace, and then one mile at marathon pace plus five seconds, which is still really fast, you know, so at least it, it, for me, it felt fast. Um, to try and recover during a fart lick while running, you know, I'd be running 515, 520 pace. And that was the recovery section. So he, mm-hmm. he really implemented a lot of work where it was long, continuous efforts where we were playing with the pace, but the, the fluctuations weren't huge. I may do my on part. I might be running 450, 455 per mile pace. Um, and then my off periods, I might be doing 515 to 520 pace. Um, wow. And so those, even those small oscillations where, you know, you might be going slightly below aerobic threshold and slightly above aerobic threshold um, and learning to deal with that discomfort over the course of, you know, I had workouts as long as 18 miles doing that type of work. Um, I think really paid off big time um, when it came to improving um, as a marathoner and half marathoner. There you go. Do you hear that, Mark? You got to listen to your coach. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He said that was the most important thing. Yeah, I'm gonna go out and see how long I can run uh four fifty five tomorrow and five twenty and <laughs> I'm gonna bounce between that's what you're talking about, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's it, man. But no, you know what you know what, Mark, like you know, we've just started working together. You will we will implement these type of workouts as you prepare for the road ultra scene. Um, and I'm not saying we're going to be putting, you know, we're not going to do like 20, 25 mile efforts doing that per se. Uh, but we will, you know, we may do a long run that is 24 miles long. And then we'll have a 12 mile portion of it where we are doing a fart like workout like that, where we're touching on, you know, we, we may be going between, we'll do hundred K pace 
as your off period and then marathon pace as you're on and we're oscillating between there. Um, that's something that you, you know, personally can expect um, in the future once we built a strong base. Yeah, yeah, sounds good. Because if I try to do that workout that you just named, I would probably make it 12 minutes, 11 or 12 minutes. Be a short, be a short day. Uh, but no, yeah, no, that's uh, that sounds great. And I think um, we can we can get into more of that too, because I, I think this is a this is an interesting discussion because usually it's like um, me kind of kind of giving advice and, and picking apart people's training. And now this is like this rare uh, thing where we have coach and athlete on the same podcast. Um, but, but first take us through this. It had to be a, a cathartic moment in Atlanta um, because four years prior um, you, you were in the best shape of your life at that point, And you had one of the most unfortunate uh, events happened with the rupturing of the appendix and uh, this had to feel like redemption for you to, to pull up at this race oh, in Atlanta, man. right? Yeah, total redemption, Mark. I mean, um, like I said, it'd been my dream since I was high school to really, you know, compete at that level and have the opportunity to, to make an Olympic team. Um, I think most, most runners, um, especially the ones that grow up and look, idolize some of the professional runners. Um, you know, I think of like Chris Selinski, Nathan Rittenheim, um, uh, Kaflesky, some of those guys um, that I grew up in high school really really looking up to um, you want to be like them and that was my opportunity that was the same stage they had raced on you know in the previous you know couple decades mm -hmm. so I was I was so excited and I soaked it all in I went to all the pre-race events my family flew up um, I had so many friends there I had one of my best friends from Houston Drew Bean he literally, he told me he wasn't coming and I was all disappointed. And then he just, I hear a knock on my hotel room door and I open it. And he's there. Like he, he bought like a last minute flight to come out and watch the race. And I was just like in tears, just, you know, just thinking about the love and support of, of him and, and everybody else that was in my corner. Um, but man, I was, I definitely wanted to run the best I could, but I was also happy to be there. You know, I yeah. talked about earlier about how it's important, like whatever you feel like, it's okay to feel what you feel. I also like to encourage people like live in the moment sometimes, right? Like it's not always about the next thing. It's not always about, um, you know, you have to be the best or it's going to be total failure. Like even, even at the level I was, I am competing at, like I knew this was going to be a once in a lifetime opportunity in 2020 at least. Um, and to just enjoy it and have fun. Yeah. And, and that's what, that's what I did. Not that, and of course, like I said, I was totally serious about it too, but I also was like, look, just soak this in, live in the moment, love it. Um, and that's what I did. So it was pretty surreal. Um, you know, I got to the race and I was seated 50th, which put me, I was actually on the second line. They had a, a line of people on the front row and I was on the second row. And if you look at pictures of the start of the race, um, Galen Rupp, who's, currently the best marathoner in the United States. For some reason, he was on the starting line like a minute before they shot the gun. He was like sitting down, like literally on his butt on the ground, sitting right before they shot the gun. And it was really, everyone was like looking at him like, what the heck are you doing, man? Um, <laughs> but in the pictures, I'm right behind him. So I got some good camera time because he was sitting. So you got a good view of me, you know, looking all menacing before the start of the race. Yeah. Um, well, and you, man, had that, it, you had that sweet kit that Rabbit hooked you up with. I saw that on Instagram. You had like a, a six singlet short duo. You look, you look cool, man. It was a good look. Oh, thanks, man. Yeah, Rabbit um, put me up in some gear that, man, they make the best gear, the most comfortable clothing I've ever worn. And I was 
you know, I was at a Nike school in college. I had all the best Nike gear there. I was that team green had a bunch of had Adidas connections. I had all the nice professional Adidas gear then, but man, rabbit, um, they really do it well when it comes to running clothing yeah. and apparel. That's for and sure. then I also, I also noticed, and because this is like a, I'm a shoe guy. I noticed you rocked like the, the special Nike vapor flies for the Olympic trial. Did you yeah. grab them from the big pile? Cause I saw a lot of people on Instagram were sharing that like Nike just had, if you wanted to wear their shoes, they had piles of them there for all the runners. Oh yeah. They had a special room and you had to have special credentials to get in. Like it was, it was pretty cool. Um, and it, yeah, it was all the unreleased, um, what they call it, the Nike Vaporfly Al- or the Nike Alpha Fly. Alpha Fly, mm-hmm. yeah. The Alpha Fly is kind of what they go by. Um, and dude, they're amazing. I put them on and I've been running in the Next Percent, the, Al- the Nike Next Percent shoes um, mm-hmm. for the last year before that. And these were like another step up. Like walking around, I felt like I was, I felt like I was on the moon, like <laughs> pretty crazy. So I, I knew that like, okay, they may feel good walking around, but for everybody out there listening, I don't care if you buy the coolest, best super shoes at the expo the day before your race, do not wear them in the race if you haven't trained in them. All right. <laughs> Take it from me because I wore the Nike Alpha Fly shoes at the Olympic trials and they did not perform as I had expected. Uh, so I made the classic the classic mistake there i did do like a couple of easy runs beforehand and they felt okay but i had not done actual efforts at pace for a long period of time in them um mm-hmm. and so they just they just didn't fit the same as the previous nike um vaporfly or next percent shoes um and i thought they would they would perform oh can y'all hear me wow. disconnect for a sec um yeah no we got you okay cool yeah they did not perform the same as the next percent shoes so they tore my toes up um they it was cutting off some circulation because they were much much narrower in the middle um mm-hmm. i mean i it, that didn't have anything to do with my performance up there i think it was just rather yeah. uncomfortable and they didn't perform as well as the normal nike shoes i had trained in before but what was like a, just out of curiosity when you when you went there and you got the shoes and you took them were you obligated to have to wear them in the race? Like what was the, what were the guidelines that Nike was laying out to be handing out all those shoes? Zero guidelines, nothing. They said, these shoes are yours. You can, you can sell them. Like they literally told us that in there. They're like, we don't care what you do with them. Oh wow! It was, it was totally a publicity stunt by Nike and Uh it worked, right? I mean, they had a lot of people running them, including uh, I think like half the people who qualified for the Olympic trials. Uh, are qualified for the Olympics in the race wore them. I think they might have all yeah. been on the men's side. Um, and the second place finner, finisher, um, Jacob Riley, he actually, the same as me, he got his shoes like the day before. He wore them in the race and then had his biggest breakthrough of his career, finishing second, behind Galen <laughs> up. Wow. So, like, yeah, he had people, an incredible race. Yeah, people had different experiences. But I know, I know a lot of people that sold them on eBay for 1500 bucks. Um, I know a lot of people that have them sitting in their closet. Um, I think the general consensus was that most people did not like them as much as the Nike next percent shoes. I have them right mm-hmm. now. And like, you obviously do. I don't, yeah, I don't run into any Nike stuff, uh, just cause of new balance, but, but I, I, I have them and I put them on and I ran, um, I ran with them and I ran those, those, uh, little pickups last week, the hill, the hill, uh, short little hill yeah. sprints. Yeah. And, uh, I felt honestly, um, like, cause I have a few carbon, carbon plated, like, 
uh, prototype New Balance shoes that I've been running in uh, that will come out in spring of 2021. And I thought those were a little mushy, but when I put those, the Alpha Fly on, the Alpha Fly is so mushy. I, yeah. I don't know. It was just almost too much. You know, you know, Mark, the stack height on them also, I mean, because they are, they're taller than they're, any of the previous Nike uh, carbon yeah, shoes. It, trying to go they're on, way up there. Trying to turn with those was hell. Like I, yeah. And that was those that, you know, in road races, turning is most road races, you don't turn a ton. Um, yeah. But mm-hmm. when you do, I and mean, there's plenty of U turns on the Olympic trials course, and I literally slowed down to a crawl because I felt very unstable um, going around the corners. But it's weird, those AirPods that are in them. Um, yeah, the, felt, they have two two zoom bags in the front stacked on top in the forefoot. Yeah, yeah, I felt those during the race, and they didn't feel good. I don't. And guys, by the way, I don't. This is not ragging on the shoes. Like the science behind them is incredible. Nike put forth a lot of money and effort, and they definitely work for some people. Um, yeah. But they definitely they did not work for me. And I'm I'm really hopeful in the future to try some of the other brands' um, shoes. I know Saucony. A lot of people have liked the Endorphin Pro that came out. Um, New Balance has New Balance released their version of it yet, Mark? Uh, they put out the Fuel Cell TC. Okay. Which is okay. which is a little bit more geared towards training. It still does have a carbon fiber plate in it. Um, they have a new shoe coming out, uh, 2021, um, that is a takedown from that. That's going to be lighter. It's Fuel Cell. Uh, so it's like a nitrogen-infused TPU, uh, really responsive. I don't know that I'm allowed to say the name of it yet, but yes, it, it will. Uh, they have one now, but the, the next one will come out. I showed it to Michael in uh, New Mexico. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was hot. It was really cool. No, that's legit. That's legit. Yeah. So, I mean, other brands are going to come out with their competitor, competitive, you know, shoes that will challenge Nike. Nike just had such a leap in terms of like, you know, they're three to four years ahead in terms of their research and science. So yep. it'll just take a little bit of time, but they'll catch up. I have faith. <laughs> so I get, we need to wrap up here. Um, unfortunately, I'd love to have you even on here for even longer. Um, first, I guess let's, let's talk about how the, how Olympic trials went for you. Yeah. So, uh, not my best race for sure. I, uh, I went out with the leaders. That was the goal that my coach and I talked about, right. It's almost like, you know, I'm not going to miss my shot or, you know, I'm going to take it. And I went out, um, it was so windy out there. It was, yeah. uh, hilly, the temperature was great. I mean, it was like 50 degrees. I can't complain about that at all. But, um, you know, looking back on my training, I, I don't think I prepared specifically enough to handle the consistent rolling hills over the course of the race. Mm-hmm. Um, and that came back to bite me. Um, I started suffering from some hamstring cramps at mile 16. Um, mm-hmm. And I thought so that's, I fell off the lead pack, like at mile 12, I, I ran with a chase pack for the next few miles until mile 16, when I started getting hamstring cramps, I ran through the cramps until mile 21. And I was at that point, I was clipping like, probably like 540, 550 pace. Um, and I literally got a hamstring cramp so bad. And then the wind hit me from the side that I lost control of my foot and it blew into my other foot and I tripped and fell. Oh. <laughs> It was like, I was like, I was fighting until I was literally just lying on the ground, like tripping over my own feet. Um, and at that point I was like, you know what? Like I could, I could run seven, eight minute pace to the finish line and may, possibly risk doing some serious damage. Cause I'm having these cramps are intense right now. So I just, I decided to call it there. Um, and you know, live to fight another day. And I, I experienced my dream. I, I ran the Olympic trials. I gave it my best possible shot. I have no regrets mm-hmm. whatsoever about that experience. And you know what? 
I'm freaking 28 years old. I'll be 32 next time, and I'm gonna kick. Yeah, I'm you gonna got kick tons of time. Butt. Yeah, right. So the fire still burns. Like I'm coming yes. back next time, and I will cross that finish line, hell or high water. Yeah, love that. Oh, love that. That's love like that. Full circle too. It's uh, yeah. it's beautiful. I think the third time could very well be the charm for you. So, um, <laughs> that's that's really exciting. Um, I guess uh, it's probably time to wrap it up. But I know Michael, you probably dying to ask me some questions about about coaching coaching with me since I usually get to be the. Oh yeah. Anything? Well, you know, yeah. I mean, you know, I'm protective of Mark. He's like my little brother. He's been training me a long time. So, uh, you know, why don't you talk to me about, you know, how did you guys realize you were going to be a good link up for each other? Was it just the soccer background? Like what, what made you think Mark was a good candidate to take on as a, uh, as a runner? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think Mark and I, we, we've connected on social media here probably for what the last, six seven months or so so kind of been able to learn about each other there via distance um and then i'd say i think in june we started uh messaging each other a little bit um i think mark had been doing some research on his own to kind of figure out hey where am i going to take this next step right who am i going to bring on to my team it's going to help me continue to grow um as a runner um so when Mark reached out to me, I believe it was late June, early July and said, Hey, like, I'm really interested in talking with you after my, um, next ultra here, um, about possibly linking up for coaching. And I was super excited. You know, I, uh, Mark, uh, is definitely one of my, my faster runners. And then his, you know, his background in motivating and coaching other people brings a whole new dynamic to, uh, my coaching because I know I can learn so much from him as well Mm -hmm. um just like i hope he can learn a lot from me and we can continue to grow on that journey together so after we had you know we had our initial phone conversation i think we're on the phone for like an hour and you know it just clicked it felt like you know i looked down my watch expecting we were on the phone for 10 minutes and like you know 50 had passed so i think we we clicked really well personality wise um we're on the same same wavelength in terms of communication how we track our training um Mm -hmm. coaching philosophy like you know it's it's nothing earth shattering. It's something that's going to help him continue to grow as an athlete. And um, I think one thing that I particularly am excited about working with you, Mark, is your, your emphasis on strength training and how you take that into your own hands. Right. Because I'll be the first to raise my hand and say, I'm not the perfect coach. I don't know everything. And that's, that's okay. Right. Cause there's experts out there who do, and I want to rely on them. And Mark has some of those people in his corner already. They're going to help him continue to stay strong as I implement, you know, uh, the type of running training that's going to help him continue to grow. So mm-hmm. that's, I mean, that's in a nutshell, um, what I really get excited about. And yeah, of course the soccer background, I think Mark is, has a much, much stronger background than, uh, than <laughs> me being on the, you know, on the professional side of it versus me, uh, budding varsity soccer player in high school. But it's pretty cool to, to know that we both came from, you know, a multi-sport background. Yeah. So what were some of the goals, Mark, outlined? Because I, you know, for every runner meeting up with a new coach, you know, I'm sure, you know, he was highlighting some goals that he had for himself. Um, you know, how, how did you take some of those in? You know, what are your initial thoughts? Um, and, uh, you know, just how do you think his training will change with his new goals that he's got in front of him? Yeah, definitely. So let me just say at the very beginning, um, as Mark and I start to work together, it's not about reinventing the wheel. 
right? Like I'm not, we're not trying to do some incredible amount of volume he's never done before right off the bat. We're not doing workouts that he's never touched upon before because changing up everything too quickly is a recipe for injury um, and having a negative experience. So what we're doing is we're starting very relaxed as he recovers from his ultra marathon in July and slowly building up, establish a strong base from there, especially because, you know, in the time of COVID with races being so limited um, now is the time to really work on weaknesses and just establish a strong, consistent routine. That's going to help you grow in the mm-hmm. long run. So what Mark and I talked about is, is kind of two types of goals here. We talked about process oriented goals, right? What are you going to do on a day-to-day basis that you can control? That's not dependent on anyone else. Um, that's going to help you continue to grow. So we talk about being consistent day to day. We talk about having a healthy mindset towards running. Um, and Mark, I'm sure I'm leaving out like six or seven other process oriented uh, features of your running and your running mindset that we're going to keep focusing on through the rest of the year. Um, sure. And then on the other side, of course, we want to dream big, right? Like what is going to get you up in the morning and get you out the door um, to continue growing as a runner? And so for Mark, you know, we talk about, hey, making a U.S. national team and the ultra distance, whether that's, you know, 50K, 100K on the roads, which are the primary focus right now, but not, you know, not totally eliminating other possibilities of making U.S. teams um, in the ultras or mountain, or I guess, mutt, mutt scene, mountain ultra trail. Um, but having that really be the goal to represent the U.S. on the biggest stage in the world. And for, for Mark, um, that journey from being, you know, a professional soccer player um, with really not a strong background in running to jumping to that level is an incredible story. And I certainly, I certainly think that's, that's possible. Um, we talked about it. it's, it's possible, but it's going to take a lot of work, a little bit of luck and a lot of persistence. And he's, he is totally aware of that. Um, and that's great. He knows what he knows what it's going to take to get there. Yeah. I mean, I'm persistent if nothing else. And <laughs> I get lucky a lot, <laughs> so who knows <laughs> what could happen. But no, I think yeah. uh, no, I, I think when I was looking when I was looking for a coach, and I reached out to Ryan. Um, I had a pretty good idea. I wanted Ryan to coach me. I mean, obviously, I'd been coached by Matt Daniels, who's a good friend of mine for the last since 2017. Um, and I wanted to make sure that when I switched, like I was, I'm so comfortable with Matt, and I wanted to make sure that when I switched to somebody, uh, to trust, you know, to trust in them and 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 be somebody that I'm comfortable with. And, and Ryan has the kind of personality that I would look for in a coach. Like I know that he's, he's going to be direct and be honest with me about a lot of things, but I also know at times I'm not like, I, I feel I do well as a coach and I'm nurturing to people, but I'm not the most nurturing to myself. Um, and I think that, I think that, you know, I can learn a lot uh, f- from Ryan about, about the way he kind of treats himself and, and, and hopefully, um, get better with that. So I, I think that aside from all the other things that I can learn, of course, and in the training itself. So I'm really excited um, to begin working with you and uh, super stoked to just to make it happen. Yeah, I'm going to try my yeah, best, man. you know, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what I'm going to do or what I'm capable of. I have no clue. Um, but what I do know is I'm going to give everything I have to it. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to put everything I have into it and try my hardest. I, I just want to highlight something Ryan said too, the, a good takeaway for the listeners. You know, like you said, when you're taking over an athlete who may have been working with somebody previously and already has some good habits, you know, uh, that you aren't trying to totally reinvent the wheel. And that might be a good thing for, uh, you know, runners out there to look out for if they start working with somebody new, 
and they try to change everything you know about the training uh, that they've done previously that that might be a red flag so that's that's just good advice out there for the listeners when they start to get together with a new coach good point yeah 100 percent. so we better wrap this up but i because yeah. i know ryan you got a you got a brand new baby uh, he's got to get a baby back to there <laughs> Yeah. Um, Ryan, and, that, what, one last question. I know you said you're a noon guy. I'm a noon guy too. What's your favorite flavor? What's your go-to flavor? Oh, you know what has been awesome is they re-released the Kona Cola flavor. Yeah, yeah. Man, I, I love it, man. Uh, tastes like flat Coke, which sounds kind of <laughs> weird, but I don't know. It, no, I, it's I'm good. enjoying it. And then that, that little hit of caffeine, oh, so good yeah. every morning. <laughs> yeah. I'm a, I'm a big grape guy. I love grape, and I, I feel like nobody else likes grape, but no. I think it's the most no, Michael, flavor. Michael, I'm a huge grape guy. I'm a big time You're grape, a grape guy. guy? Oh, big, heck yeah. Team grape. I always go to grape, like, grape pre-workouts all the time. Um, <laughs> when, I, when, I'm, when I'm in the gym doing my bodybuilding, that's completely useless for running. <laughs> I, I, always, <laughs> I always take the grape pre-workouts. Yeah. I always gravitate towards them. I love it, and grape yeah. noon is good, too. Yeah. Well, Ryan, thanks so much for coming on and uh, appreciate answering all the questions and excited to see what you and Mark are going to be able to do together. I know he's in good hands. Um, so thanks again for coming on and, and answering all our questions. Yeah. Thanks, Michael. Thanks, Mark. You guys are awesome. And I can't wait to chat with you guys in the future. All right. Really quick, Ryan, if somebody wants to be coached by you, um, where can they find you at? What's your social media? All that. Yep. Right now, I'm, I am working on a website um, being built right now. But if you want to reach out to me, Instagram's the best way, at RyanMiller34. Um, you can shoot me a note there. Or my email is ryan.miller.coaching at gmail.com. Um, I'm also pretty active on Strava. So if anyone wants a, a good follow there and a, some fun community, um, go and, you know, give me a follow there. and I'd love to connect with you and kind of see what you're up to. All right. Well, there you have it. Ryan, thanks again. I look forward to working with you. Thanks for coming on the podcast. And until next time, stay strong. All right. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Finding Strong Podcast. As always, if this episode brought you value, um, please like, share, subscribe, rate us on iTunes, share us on Instagram, tell the world about us. Thanks again. And stay strong.